Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject. Johnny Carson, the king of comedy. Now let's get started with our story about Johnny Carson. On May 22, 1992, Johnny Carson made his final appearance as the host of The Tonight Show. His reign as the king of late-night American television began almost 30 years earlier, on October 1, 1962. He, or a guest host, appeared in 6,714 episodes, not including reruns, and the program achieved an unprecedented level of television success, establishing Carson as a uniquely popular American icon and celebrity. His show routinely attracted approximately 40% of the nation's late-night audience, and by the late 70s generated almost 20% of NBC television's profit. His compensation reflected these achievements. By the mid-70s, he was the highest-paid American entertainer and eventually earned $25 million annually from his NBC salary alone. But, although television viewers responded to a persona that radiated a friendly warmth and hilarious sense of humor, his private life was frequently a stark contrast, marked by three high-profile divorces, lengthy business and personal relationships severed abruptly and permanently over perceived slights, and a personality described as guarded, aloof, and frequently brutally cold. John William Carson was born on October 23, 1925, in Corning, Iowa. At the time of his birth, his father, Homer Kit Carson, was a lineman for the Iowa and Nebraska Light and Power Utility. His mother, Ruth Carson, although unusually college-educated, was a homemaker to Johnny, his older sister Catherine, and younger brother Richard. Although Carson grew up during the Great Depression, he and his family did not suffer the great deprivation that affected many of their Midwestern neighbors. Johnny's father was promoted into management at the utility, and while he was transferred to several towns in southwestern Iowa and ultimately assigned to Norfolk, Nebraska, his management job at the electric company was never in jeopardy. Johnny's early childhood was nothing out of the ordinary. He attended elementary school and was sociable, making several friends. Free time was spent at the YMCA, riding his bike, and in the summer, camping along the nearby Elkhorn River. But from an early age, Carson had a propensity to perform, at first merely imitating the cartoon character Popeye. He himself explained this inclination in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, 
an indication that Carson was headed for a certain career path at an early age. There comes a time or a moment when you know in which direction you are going to go. I know it happened to me when I was quite young. I think it's when you find out that you can get in front of an audience and be in control. I think that probably happened in grade school, fifth or sixth grade, where I could get attention by being different, by getting up in front of an audience or a group of kids and calling the attention to myself by what I did or what I said or how I acted. And I said, hey, I like that feeling. When I was a kid, I was shy. And I think I did that because it was a device to get attention. And to get that reaction is a strange feeling. It is a high that I don't think you can get from drugs. I don't think you can get it from anything else. The mind starts to do things that you didn't even realize it could do. I suppose it's the manipulation. I suppose it's the sense of power, the center of attention, and the meism. And performers have to have that. That's one of the things that goes against the grain of being brought up that you should be modest. You should be humble. You shouldn't draw attention to yourself. Well, to be an entertainer, you got to be a little gutsy, a little egotistical. Carson himself would also describe another monumental moment in his life when at age 12, a boyhood friend showed him a marked deck of cards and a booklet that explained how to perform card tricks. He immediately began buying books about magic and even ventriloquism, obsessed with the idea of performing as a magician. From then on, he was constantly pestering friends, relatives, and his immediate family with magic tricks, especially card tricks. He assumed a stage name, the Great Carsoni, his mother giving him a Christmas gift of a magician's table with a black velvet cloth ornately embroidered with this new identity. But this was not a child's private hobby. A driven Johnny also quickly sought out audiences for his budding act, performing for his mother's bridge club, church socials, and eventually snagging his first paid gig at the age of 14 before the local Rotary Club. His fee, $3. This process also underlined a fundamental within the Carson family. Ruth Carson, both domineering within her marriage and austere in dealing with both of her sons, was never verbally supportive of her older son's efforts, his determined performing possibly a search for the approval and attention he never received at home. Although World War II broke out in 1941, Carson continued with his high school studies until graduation. He did not demonstrate a deep intellect, graduating 54th in a class of 141, with a B average. However, his outgoing personality and perpetual inclination to perform and entertain made a lasting impression, at least one teacher inscribing in his yearbook, you have the ability to make people laugh. You will go far in the entertainment world. Carson enlisted in the Navy, fully intent on participating in action against either Japan or Germany. Instead, he wound up in officer's training school, first in New York and then at tiny Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi. Finally, in mid-1945, he shipped out on the battleship, the USS Pennsylvania, headed for the Pacific Theater. Despite atomic bombs being dropped in early August and the Japanese surrender, sporadic attacks continued. On August 12th, the Pennsylvania was damaged by a torpedo. The ship managed to make it to Okinawa, but 20 sailors were killed 
the closest Carson got to mortality during the conflict. After a short time in port, the Pennsylvania then turned around and headed to Seattle. There, Carson, an officer, was placed in charge of a troop train that not only carried veterans back to their homes and various stops across North America, but also carried the bodies of dead combatants, an odorously grim reminder that was unavoidable within the train compartments. After this assignment, Carson was then sent to Guam. With the war over, there was plenty of downtime, requiring organized entertainment that Johnny took part in, utilizing a ventriloquist dummy named Eddie, his jokes mostly poking fun at other officers, which went over big with the rest of the audience, always eager to laugh at their superiors in a socially acceptable manner. Before long, the Pennsylvania was headed for the mainland U.S., the end of Carson's service and discharge, and eventual enrollment at the University of Nebraska. There he pledged a fraternity, but his military experience dimmed his enthusiasm for the typical antics of his more sophomoric fraternity brothers. It was here that Johnny would first get tagged as aloof, not particularly popular, and even a loner. Nevertheless, he was a high-profile student, achieving notoriety in the annual fraternity talent show, his frequently risque humor establishing him as a well-known campus figure. He also routinely worked his magic act for paid gigs, both within his fraternity and at other social events in Lincoln and beyond. Performing in front of Milkmen's conventions and municipal clubs, Radio was also still the primary entertainment medium in the late 40s, television still in its infancy in the Midwest. By his senior year, Carson had a recurring role on a 30-minute radio comedy serial on Lincoln radio station KFAB three times a week, appearances that required him to get permission to get to his Spanish class 15 minutes late. Writing his senior thesis on the topic of how to write comedy jokes, Carson listened to his own recorded tapes of the preeminent radio comedians of the day, Fred Allen, Milton Berle, Jack Benny, and Bob Hope, endlessly studying their style, intent on finding the formula that he could use for his own similar success. Johnny Carson graduated from the University of Nebraska in the spring of 1949. His ability and ease as a master of ceremonies and performer was readily identifiable, and he was hired even before graduation by Omaha radio station WOW 590 AM. His salary was $47.50 a week. This was no backwater position. WOW was one of the most powerful radio stations in the Midwest. Johnny serving as an on-air personality from 8.15 until 9 a.m., starting on August 1, 1949. This was not the only major transition in Carson's life. On October 1, 1949, he married his longtime college girlfriend, Joan Jody Walcott. Their relationship was a very traditional liaison. Imbued with Midwestern values, Jody so supportive in Carson's chosen vocation that she accompanied him on stage during his various magic shows as his assistant. Carson was also domineering to the point of picking out her wardrobe, and the marriage was clearly all about his professional needs and career. After the wedding, there was no formal honeymoon, the couple returning to work and life at Carson's modest Omaha apartment. 
Along with his radio assignment, Carson was quickly designated as the host of a 15-minute television program that began at 12.30, which he called The Squirrel's Nest. Expectations were not particularly high, as WOW was the first station to go on the air in eastern Nebraska and western Iowa, but Carson was able to adopt both a sarcastic and endearing manner with a touch of slapstick, which became his core television personality. On both his radio and television program, nothing was sacred, not even Christmas, which turned into a pie-throwing melee live on the holiday itself and not the standard radio routines of conventional radio. Record companies sent out pre-recorded interviews of recording stars, which DJs typically could use for positive interviews and publicity. One such package had Patty Page responding, quote, When I was six, I used to get up at church socials and do it, unquote. Unlike the standard question that would have been something along the lines of, when did you start performing publicly? Carson substituted the question, I understand you're hitting the bottle pretty good, Patty. When did you start? This was funny original stuff in 1950. Carson also anticipated some of his more famous routines on The Tonight Show, reading fake letters on the air, answering alleged questions from viewers. One such letter supposedly asked, What do you have to do to be in broadcasting? Carson's deadpan response, have an outside source of income. Truly, money was uppermost in Johnny's mind as his wife gave birth to their first child, a son Chris, in November of 1950. Even by then, Carson was ambitious and, despite his early success, understood that any real prominence in his industry could only happen in New York or Los Angeles. He spent his summer vacation in 1951 in San Francisco and L.A., attempting to get a 30-minute demo reel in front of TV and radio station general managers. His only positive response was from a former Iowa buddy now managing KNX-TV in Los Angeles, Bill Brennan, who told him that he would get him in the door as soon as he had an opening. That October, Johnny got the call that Brennan had a staff announcing position that paid 115 bucks weekly, and Carson had seven days to get to Los Angeles. Carson took the job, loaded up a U-Haul, and headed west, telling his wife that he'd send for her when he got settled with a place to live. For Johnny, who at least had his own show, following and comfortable niche in Omaha, this was quite a gamble, but he believed in himself, and even if it was at the bottom of the ladder, he was getting a crack at the big time. Later, Johnny Carson stated that he gave himself one year to make it in Los Angeles, and if he didn't show some specific progress, he would pack up and move to New York. He took on any responsibility or assignment the station was willing to afford him, and management was true to their word when it came to giving him greater opportunity. On October 4, 1952, at 7 o'clock Saturday night, KNX-TV-TV debuted Carson's Cellar, a comedy show of various bits with Johnny as the centerpiece, surrounded by a three-member band called the New Yorkers and a straight-arrow announcer with a powerful voice named John Condon. The show was produced on a shoestring budget that frequently required the musicians and even the director's wife to participate in various send-ups. Nothing was sacred, 
and the cast would do anything for a laugh. Once an unrecognizable person quickly walked across the screen, his back to the camera, and Carson announced that that was Red Skelton doing a guest appearance. Skelton, a huge star at the time, must have had a sense of humor, because the following week he showed up in studio, an indication that the show was already a hit within the industry. Soon an impromptu in-house audience began to build as well. Carson generated enough buzz to get William Morris calling, and in no time he had a deal with a network sponsor, American Home Products, for a 13-week show to be shown regionally throughout the West Coast. But the zany, irreverent style of Carson's seller went out the window completely. Already sponsors and networks had a great deal to say about material and were intent on presenting Carson in just another variety show with some clever banter a female singer in front of an orchestra, and the type of tame material that made the program ordinary. All of the momentum that Carson established in his first years in Hollywood disappeared with his 13-week stint. He wasn't renewed, and it was back to scrambling gigs to pay the rent. This failure could not have come at a worse time. On November 2, 1953, Jody gave birth to a third son, Corey, and once again money was tight. Carson survived as the MC of a network game show, Earn Your Vacation, but also paid the bills as a staff writer for CBS's Red Skelton, at the time one of America's most popular television comics. Skelton famously incorporated physical slapstick comedy into his various televised routines and skits, opening the door for Carson in a manner that could only happen in show business. On August 18, 1954, Red was rehearsing a bit with a breakaway door, a prop that is supposed to split harmlessly when the actor slams through it. Except this particular door didn't react properly, rendering Skelton unconscious. When it became clear that the show would not go on, the producer called Johnny and with only a few hours' notice asked Carson to do the show in Skelton's place. While most of what he did consisted of Carson merely introducing pre-recorded footage of previous Skelton performances, his ability to be flexible and jump into live television was recognized as a valuable talent. This led to a contract with CBS, and the development process began for another iteration of The Johnny Carson Show, a summer replacement that first appeared on June 30, 1955, on Thursdays at 10 p.m. The network provided at least a foundation for success, allowing the hire of announcer Condon and Carson's producer buddy, Bill Brennan. But once again, the challenges of network television and sponsors stifled Carson's various talents and attempted to fit him into the current variety show persona. Although a great deal of publicity was generated, including an appearance on the cover of TV Guide, much of the focus was on Carson's family life, with an emphasis on his wife and children. This was ironic because much of Carson's free time was spent keeping late hours with broadcast cronies at various industry watering holes, his wife stuck in their home in the San Fernando Valley, raising a very demanding trio of young boys. Producers and directors were hired and fired. Formats changed, but it did little good. This version of the Johnny Carson show lasted 39 weeks. Upon cancellation, Johnny, still under contract, was given a daytime program, also called The Johnny Carson Show, also canceled by the end of the summer of 1956. Desperate for money and visibility, 
Carson signed on for $400 a week at a nightclub in Bakersfield. Not particularly happy with his current show business direction, Carson spent much of his stand-up routine putting down the locals with a predictable response. His career seemed to be bottoming out. In the spring of 1957, Carson fired his agent at William Morris, convinced by two relative neophytes, Tom Shields and Al Bruno, that they would spend way more time on him as their major client, as opposed to a much larger traditional agency. Shields was able to get Carson an audition for a daytime network game show. It was a comedown from primetime network television, but it was a job, and it got Carson back in the game when the producers found him to be head and shoulders over any of the other candidates. The program, eventually entitled Who Do You Trust?, was taped in New York, which necessitated a move across country, a process Jody was only too willing to oblige. Their marriage was teetering on the brink of collapse, and she hoped a new job and new location might be the fresh start to improve the situation. Who Do You Trust was both a different type of game show and a different form of television entertainment. Groucho Marx appeared on the first breakout example of this format in You Bet Your Life, a program spiced up by various hilarious Marx ad-libs. Who Do You Trust, a kind of precursor to the newlywed game, featured couples interviewed about their lives and interests. Johnny Carson ad-libbed hilariously and even reenacted some of the hobbies and interests like scuba diving and race car driving in ways that were inventive. Johnny dutifully got into an enclosed water tank on set and even crashed a small car into a stage wall during this portion of the show. Never mind that the program was almost entirely pre-scripted. The ad-libs were contributed by writers and contestants were warned not to ad-lib themselves. The show was a hit, so much so that the producers of a Broadway play, Tunnel of Love, when looking to replace leading man Tom Ewell, decided to hire Carson. The play, seemingly on its last legs when Johnny was hired, ran for another 10 weeks. But a peculiar side of Carson's personality became evident, especially to his co-star, Marsha Hunt. Although she played his onstage wife and they had adjoining dressing rooms, in 10 weeks they had one two-minute conversation when Hunt asked Johnny where he had gotten the sweater he was wearing. This attitude also prevailed when Johnny dealt with the writers of his game show, essentially closeting himself away from them and communicating through the producer. But one individual did manage to crack the seemingly impenetrable veneer. When his initial announcer for the program got a job hosting another game show, this individual suggested Philadelphia television announcer and ex-Marine Ed McMahon as his replacement. Carson and McMahon had an immediate chemistry, Johnny literally setting the MC's script on fire on McMahon's very first Who Do You Trust? McMahon became more than a straight man, the butt of jokes, but clearly an individual that Johnny cared about deeply. For once, this was not some manufactured TV construct. McMahon assumed a critical role in Johnny's life during this time period, that of his drinking buddy, usually immediately after Who Do You Trust concluded. Although the Carson family residence was in suburban Harrison, New York, Johnny had rented an apartment during his appearance in Tunnel of Love, some in his inner circle believing that this was the sole reason for his acceptance of the role. Despite a competent performance, he never pursued acting, but he also did not give up the apartment. 
In truth, despite the public relations veneer, at this point Johnny Carson's family life was in shambles. He openly philandered, not particularly caring if his wife knew, and when she responded by attempting to arouse his jealousy or abused alcohol, their interactions escalated to Carson's physical abuse, exacerbated by his own heavy drinking. Only his Midwestern upbringing prevented Carson from coming to an obvious conclusion. His last attempts at keeping the marriage together consisted of reinforcing the idea that Jody could pursue her own career in art and painting and that he would be financially supportive. This didn't work out. In September of 1959, the couple separated legally. Carson moved to a new bachelor pad on Manhattan's east side, probably where he belonged all along. For the rest of his life, he was quick to point out that it was his wife who asked for the divorce as if this absolved him of any responsibility for the marriage's failure. Characteristically, Carson's personal dysfunction did not affect either his on-screen performance or his ambition. His management team was able to get him two weeks as a vacation replacement for Jack Parr, the current reigning host of NBC's vaunted Tonight Show, and Johnny's marital difficulties were kept quiet. Instead, he cultivated a media image of a thoughtful, humble, regular guy. He made numerous guest appearances on such popular programs as I've Got a Secret and The Perry Como Show, becoming what's known in the industry as a personality. Who do you trust it served its purpose? Carson in a holding pattern waiting to land bigger and better things. The next big thing began to crystallize in late 1961. Rumors were sweeping the industry that Jack Parr was getting tired of hosting NBC's late-night talk show and was thinking of leaving the 105-minute, five-day-a-week program. Parr was something of a national television phenomenon, firmly establishing NBC's Tonight Show as one of the cornerstones of the network's lineup. The Tonight Show actually began in September of 1954 and was hosted by Steve Allen, its format very similar to the program as hosted by both Parr and subsequently Johnny Carson. An opening monologue, interaction with, and questions from the studio audience, guest interviews ranging from celebrities to various eccentrics and oddballs, and skits. Allen was wildly successful, and eventually NBC decided to position him in a variety show format opposite Ed Sullivan on Sunday nights, an ultimately unsuccessful attempt to compete with Sullivan's CBS powerhouse. While this was a gradual transition, Allen left The Tonight Show completely in 1957, and after the network presented a brief failed attempt at a national news magazine, Jack Parr, a veteran comic, morning, and game show host, was brought into a restored talk show format similar to Steve Allen's program. Parr was even more successful than Allen and made a conscious effort to assemble a more provocative ensemble of guests that included journalists like William Buckley, politicians like Senator John F. Kennedy, athletes like Muhammad Ali, then known as Cassius Clay, and even Fidel Castro. The show had much more depth than the typical talk show with appearances from the usual actor or singer flogging their latest film or song project. Parr's own wit, humor, and personality became the basic impetus behind The Tonight Show becoming a national institution. But unlike the steady, consistent Carson, at least on the air, 
Parr had a quirky personality that didn't mesh well with the requirements of a national television celebrity. He was cerebral, secretly uncomfortable as the center of attention, and found the process of composing and performing a daily monologue both tedious and grueling. Although it stunned the audience, it should not have surprised anyone close to him when he abruptly walked off the program in 1960 in a dispute over the term water closet that network censors cut from the show, removing the words and the joke that contained them, replacing them with a news segment without telling the host. Although The Tonight Show simulated a live performance, it was actually taped a few hours before airtime for just such a situation. The next night, February 11, 1960, about halfway through the program, Parr made the following announcement. I am leaving The Tonight Show. There must be a better way of making a living than this. There's a way of entertaining people without being constantly involved in some form of controversy, which is on me all the time. It's rough on my wife and child, and I don't need it. I like the National Broadcasting Company. They've been swell to me, and I've been pretty wonderful to them. I took over a show with 60 stations. Now there are 158. The show is sold out. It's the highest, I think, money producer for this network. And I believe I was let down by this network at a time when I could have used their help. You have been peachy to me always. With that, Parr got up from his desk and literally walked off of the set, leaving his MC, Hugh Downs, to finish the show. He then disappeared for approximately a month before returning on March 7th to an enthusiastic response. But Parr's fundamental angst remained, and within two years, it was announced that he would leave The Tonight Show on March 30, 1962. He was considered such an irreplaceable fixture at the time that several major stars, including Jackie Gleason, Groucho Marx, Bob Newhart, and Joey Bishop, all declined and offered to replace him as The Tonight Show host. Carson himself also initially declined, believing he wasn't ready for such a high-profile, practically daily situation. Because of the reluctance of the other potential candidates, and because the network and Carson's manager Al Bruno were becoming more insistent once Parr had an official exit date, Johnny finally agreed. NBC was very enthusiastic, most likely because they did not realize that Who Do You Trust was the most scripted game show on television, and they allowed Carson to fulfill the final six months of his ABC contract. The network used various guest hosts to run out the clock until October 1, 1962, including Art Linkletter, Jerry Lewis, and Merv Griffin, the latter host so good that he got his own NBC daytime show out of it. Carson's version of the show had some immediate changes from the Parr era. Johnny's announcer was Ed McMahon, also making the transition from Who Do You Trust? Paul Anka wrote a brand new theme song, which eventually was literally associated with Carson, who eventually wrote lyrics to the song. Although the lyrics were never used, it entitled Johnny to 50% of the royalties generated by the song's usage. From the very first program, Ed McMahon introduced Carson with his trademark drawn-out Here's Johnny that remained for the entire duration of Carson's stint. But these cosmetic and behind-the-scenes production team changes couldn't obscure one fundamental aspect of the transition. If Carson was unable to fill Parr's shoes, there was no guarantee that the network would even keep the show, much less Carson.
The vast majority of the rest of late-night television consisted of reruns of cheap B-movie catalogs, far less problematic to program. Although on his initial program he received an introduction from Groucho Marx, Carson did avoid a glitzy overload of A-list superstars, opting instead for Joan Crawford or Rudy Valley, both had books to plug, Tony Bennett, whose music Carson liked, and the hilariously verbose Mel Brooks. Columnists and television critics were lukewarm. Industry insiders also felt that the show lacked direction and Parr's distinct ingratiating quirkiness. But the public seemed to feel differently. From the very first week of the new Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, the ratings were not only good, they were historically sensational, better than Jack Parr. It did take Carson a while to settle in, to work in his own new characters, and to develop his own style. But his overarching theme was to make any guest host look good, and if they were pompous or boring, to poke fun at them in a way that kept the show upbeat. A perfect example involved comedian Red Buttons, never known for much more than typical nightclub slapstick and one-liners. Uncharacteristically on a show appearance, Buttons launched into a long-winded political and social commentary, not sensing that Carson wanted him to move on. Finally, when he and the audience could stand it no more, Johnny quipped, Wow, you're just a regular red-headed Dr. Schweitzer this evening, aren't you? A line that brought down the house. On August 17, 1963, Carson, possibly feeling more secure professionally with more than a year under his belt at the new show, married his longtime girlfriend, Joanne Carson. This despite years of fighting publicly, acrimonious vacations in which one of them left and went home early, and numerous friends and acquaintances advising them not to tie the knot. Even the ceremony and reception were odd. Only a tiny number of participants witnessed the actual marriage, the couple's parents not even invited. The reception included only a few more individuals and was held at Johnny's apartment, the guests' mostly Tonight Show-related staff, like band leader Skitch Henderson and producer Arch Stark. Another strange aspect of the marriage was that Carson had never officially handled his situation with his first wife, Jody. Although they were legally separated and had agreed on a financial arrangement, the first Mrs. Carson would have to fly to Mexico and get a quickie divorce before there could legally be a second Mrs. Carson. Although this helped Johnny avoid massive negative publicity and was a hassle, the docile Jody agreed, at this point just wanting to get on with her life. This new development in his personal life did little to change Carson's professional schedule. His workday routine was both insulated and deliberately cordoned off from all but a few chosen staff members like Ed McMahon or Johnny's producer. This producer, Art Stark, had also been the producer on Who Do You Trust? Johnny usually came into his office at 30 Rockefeller Plaza at about 10, and sometimes later, depending on how late he had been out the night before. He spent the first few hours combing newspapers for potential material and by midday received the efforts of the half dozen or so writers assigned to churn out his monologue, initial post-monologue bit, and skits and ad-libs. Reviewing the material, he made changes, added some of his own ideas, and eliminated gags he didn't like. He rarely met with writers, passing along any criticism via Art Stark. The guests appearing on the show were the domain of the various talent coordinators and the show's producer. 
It did not take long for the extraordinary celebrity of Johnny Carson to take hold. By October of 1965, only three years after his first appearance, one New York newspaper printed that Johnny might have, quote, the most familiar face in America, unquote. He and his wife upgraded from their prototypical York Avenue East Side apartment to the prestigious UN Plaza, 1st and 49th, their duplex, 35th and 36th story, 10-room townhouse, enjoying a sweeping view from the George Washington Bridge to the tip of Manhattan Island. Some of their neighbors included Senator Robert Kennedy, David Suskind, Cliff Robertson, and another individual who eventually became very friendly with Joanne Carson, Truman Capote. But if Jody Carson was a traditional homemaker desperately trying to please her husband, Joanne Carson was quite the opposite. Perhaps so thrilled to finally be Mrs. Johnny Carson, Joanna seemed deliriously happy, the relationship not as combative as their premarital interaction. But domesticity was not her strong suit. Neither Johnny or Joanne could boil water. Johnny frequently dining on popcorn popped on the stove and milk or Sour Lee chocolate cake a couple of times a day. Joanne spent much of her time redecorating the townhouse, an ongoing process that eventually left clutter everywhere. Still, the Carsons rarely socialized, comfortable spending time in their luxurious apartment. Johnny no longer could casually wander around in public without being hassled by fans, impromptu auditions, and even demands to appear on his program. To attend a performance or sporting event, he began to don wigs, hats, and large sunglasses to try to minimize this harassment. His apartment became a sanctuary, his habits practically reclusive. Over time, Carson's isolation with Joanne brought out their former confrontational behavior. This also would not escape the scrutiny of Truman Capote, who literally could hear Carson's verbal and physical abuse through the walls. One reason the writer became close to Joanne was that when the atmosphere got too heated, Joanne would escape to Capote's apartment, a drunken Johnny frequently quickly following banging on the door. Capote would have her wait until Carson had most likely passed out before she furtively returned to her place. Johnny's relationship with his sons was also predictably problematic. His first wife had issues with alcohol, exacerbated by her inability to raise three teenage and pre-teenage boys. Her solution was to put all three in boarding schools in Westchester. Eventually, Jody's drinking got her confined to a halfway house in Connecticut and Johnny Carson felt that he had no choice but to pursue full custody, which he did successfully. But his children remained in boarding schools, and while they spent holidays in New York City, their father spent his free time performing in Las Vegas or out of town. Their main parental influence during this time period would have been Joanne, a not particularly maternal figure. Eventually, Jody became involved in a relationship with an individual named Donald Buckley, who she actually married, possibly because it might help her regain at least partial custody of her children. Her divorce settlement allowed her alimony of 15% of Carson's gross income if it exceeded a certain number, which it already had. Jody agreed to forego future alimony, but demanded additional cash based on her belief that her payment had not kept up with Carson's salary increases. The case was settled when Johnny agreed to pay $13,500 over a 30-year period. 
Jody married Buckley, gave up the 15% alimony, and got a divorce two years later. Forgoing 15% of Johnny Carson's annual income for 35 years for a brief union was a typically unfortunate outcome for Jody, who spent the subsequent decades in a vagabond existence of total obscurity. The chaos of Johnny's personal life was diametrically opposed to the well-oiled machine that was The Tonight Show. The propulsion of the show to new heights of national prominence began on April 4, 1968, when a guest named Herbert Boutros Corey, also known as Tiny Tim, flitted on stage, blowing kisses, and sang his rendition of a jazz-age standard, Tiptoe Through the Tulips. Tim's glass-shattering singing falsetto, unfashionable dress, asexual physique, stringy shoulder-length hair, parrot beak honker, an enormous overbite made him one of show business's most improbable success stories. But there he was, after his first sensational national appearance on the premiere of Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Besides his jarring physical appearance, Tiny Tim also espoused bizarre personal habits, like a 90-minute shower first thing in the morning, and his firm belief that much of the world's ills were the result of impurities and soap demonstrating his uncanny ability to read an audience rather than condescending or even lampooning, Carson remained completely benign, acting agreeably bewildered and greeting Tiny Tim at the couch with the one-liner, that's the damnedest act I've ever seen. When Tiny Tim discoursed extensively on health foods and the body, Carson possibly offered one of his best deadpan lines in the history of his tenure, responding, well, how do you stay so healthy? You look in good shape. This to an individual who appeared to have just broken out of a psychiatric hospital. Tiny Tim continued with utterly bizarre patter, Johnny retaining his sense of aghast bemusement for a memorably hilarious debut. So good that Tiny Tim was booked every seven weeks until September of 1969, when he gushed on the air the news to Carson that the singer was engaged and going to be married on Christmas to his fiancée, who he referred to as Miss Vicky. He also always referred to Johnny Carson as Mr. Carson. Although it seemed spontaneous, Tiny Tim had already agreed with the talent coordinators that his marriage ceremony would take place on The Tonight Show. And so, because Johnny Carson sincerely explained to Tiny Tim that he could not be available Christmas Day, on December 17, 1969, after months of relentless hype, the wedding took place on the stage of The Tonight Show. Never mind that Miss Vicky, a.k.a. Victoria Budinger, was 17 years old and Tiny Tim was pushing 40. Johnny milked the occasion for everything it was worth bringing out two guests, Florence Henderson and Phyllis Diller, for standard interviews before the main event. Then the utterly traditional ceremony, amidst a specially constructed set and 1,000 tulips, adding to the completely surreal atmosphere. In character, while Johnny and guests toasted the newlyweds with champagne, Tiny Tim and his bride drank honey and milk. The groom then strummed the zither, singing a lengthy falsetto entreaty to his bride. Johnny remained utterly respectful and genial for the entire ceremony and aftermath for what ultimately became, after men landing on the moon, the most watched television program during the decade of the 60s, experienced by an estimated 45 million viewers. 
Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Johnny Carson. Information for this program came from the books King of the Night by Lawrence Lemur and Johnny Carson by Henry Bushkin. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Subscribe to my YouTube page at Noblesse Oblige, and also rate us on iTunes. If you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. Mm-hmm.